Ah, so let's see where to where to begin. Um, I I came to know Thich Nhat Hanh through a series of what we call causes and conditions, just a, a combination of factors and forces that came together that I had almost nothing to do with and. Life is so like that. I'm sure you all have had experiences where you look back and go, how did that happen? I had no hand in that. And um, I had, um, I did not know hardly anything about Buddhism. I had read Miracle of Mindfulness, his first book. I think it was his first book a few years before. And I had sat one weekend retreat at Barry, Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation. I was a spiritual explorer. I was a, a political activist turned spiritual explorer. And I was going to Catholic retreat centers and talks by swamis and gurus. And I was doing uh, tarot readings and seeing psychics. I mean, I was on a quest. I was on a quest for peace, for peace, because, you know, the, the well, just because I'm a human being, <laughs> that's what humans want. Um, so this uh, Buddhist retreat was one of many things I tried out, and I loved the talking and I hated the silence. It, I just got so restless. So um, I moved to California in 1986 and um, a woman named Fran Peavy, who some of you may know, she was a close colleague of Joanna Macy's and they started the despair and empowerment work and the uh, many things bringing emotional uh, presence to the political issues of the times. Anyway, Fran got invited to a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh in the early days when he wasn't doing many, he'd only done one or two other retreats in the U.S. And it was an invitational retreat for artists. And Fran was a writer and a social change activist. And she was one of my mentors. And she said, Betsy, you have to be at this retreat. So she got me invited. And I went... Um, not knowing anything. I knew it was for artists and what I pictured was sort of like an artist conference where we'd have show and tell, right? And we would have these circles where people would share their poetry and share their songs and already my ego was getting ready for this display of myself because I had been a singer-songwriter for decades and, um, uh, and in the political realms and other realms as well. So First, he made us be quiet for three days. It was silent for three days. And I thought, what is this? You invite a bunch of artists together and then you tell them to shut up? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about this. But in the silence, things started happening, of course. And then we, then we began to share in a certain way. But I want to tell you the core of the message from that retreat. He said to us, you artists have a unique capacity to communicate to the Western audience through your art, through your painting, your dance, your theater, poetry, songs, and to convey the Dharma in a way that a Vietnamese monk with a strong accent and, you know, halting English might not do so well. So I need you. I need you to help bring this, these teachings to the West because the West really needs them. Um, so he understood the power of art. That's one of the first things I realized about him um, was his deep respect for art. And he was an artist. He was a poet and a writer and a calligrapher. And um, what he said is, please don't make art that tries to sound Eastern and esoteric and Buddhist. Don't please, he said, don't make Buddhist art. <laughs> 
just speak these truths through a Western form and make it accessible. Well, I had my guitar, of course, so I went off in the woods and we'd been chanting some and we would chant the refuges, the three treasures. I take refuge in the Buddha, I took refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And if any of you have chanted in a traditional Buddhist way, it's pretty mono musical, right? It kind of goes flat, 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 little bump, flat, 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 little bump. So the refuges might go like, Buddham Saranam Gachami, right? That one little up. Thank you, Patty. Patty's doing the sign language. Dhamam Saranam Gachami. <laughs> so I went off in the woods and um, opened up as retreats do, trusting and in my heart, being a Westerner. This is what came out. I take refuge in the Buddha, the one who shows me the way in this life. Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya. Why don't you sing that with me? Let's try it. I take refuge. I take refuge in the Buddha, the one who shows me the way in this life. understanding and love, the way of understanding and love. Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya. I take refuge in the Sangha, the community of mindful harmony. The community of mindful harmony. Namo Dharma, Namo Sangaya. Here we go. Namo Buddhaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya. Namo Buddhaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya. So I loved that, and I thought, I can never sing this to him. I can never sing it to these real Buddhists, because there was about 70 artists there, some people who became quite renowned afterwards. Joan Halifax was there, um, and Naomi Newman from the Traveling Jewish Theater, and Rick Fields, who wrote When the Swans Came to America, the book about how Buddhism came to America. Um, and I was a complete newbie. I was such a novice. I hope you understand, from your own experience, any time when you have felt like everybody else knows what they're doing and I'm just trying my best to keep my nose clean and not do anything stupid, right? You know, that was sort of my, my, my intention for that retreat is don't make a mistake and don't look stupid. <laughs> so when I wrote this song, I thought, well, this is so transgressive. It's so out of the box. It just isn't, isn't okay. This is not okay. Um, give me one second. I want to adjust my view for a minute. Please bear with me. Um, 
There we go. That's what I want to do. Thank you. Okay, good, good. I'm, I'm better now. And, but I did, I did, because I couldn't resist when the time, when an invitation was given to the group to um, share something they had created. I sang it and um, he loved it. Everybody loved it. It just kind of captured what we were all trying to do. And um, so that was really heartening for me and um, surprising and wonderful. And so I realize now more than I did then, because I just didn't know much about Buddhism, but having been much more immersed in it since then, I really realized how unorthodox he was. And he's not the only Buddhist uh, monk or teacher um, to be quirky, you know, there, you know, and so forth. He wasn't quirky, but he he really went to the heart of what is going to get the Dharma to the people who need it. He had utmost faith in the healing power of Dharma and utmost faith in it being that practice was the answer to the, the ills of the human race, from war to, to racism to divorce to just, you know, the, the dark night of the soul. And he would, he was sort of like by any means necessary. If he could use artists, he was going to use artists. He then went on to meet with therapists and environmentalists, and he had this deep, deep mission of uh, bringing an end to suffering to the world. And by suffering, he meant each individual, but he also meant our global suffering. And you remember that he first came to the United States during the Vietnam War as a young monk um, to teach at Columbia, but also he was brought over by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, peace activists. And he met with Martin Luther King and asked him to please speak out against the war. This was 1960, I don't know, I want to say seven maybe, no, 66, 67. And he met with General McNamara, uh, who Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and for an hour. And it was not long after that that General McNamara resigned from his position. And after Thich Nhat Hanh met with um, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King did speak out against the war for the first time and also nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. So from very young, he was his mission was very uh, global, very large, and his, his um, understanding that it didn't matter if he was young, it didn't matter what his language was, that he was a transmission of something way beyond his individualness. So at the end of that retreat, something just absolutely astonishing happened to me, which was he came to me and he said, Betsy, I am going from here to my next retreat, and it's with Vietnamese people who came over here who, who escaped Vietnam in boats with their lives, and they are now living here, and they are having children and raising children here. And they are suffering as refugees, as people who have endured a war, and as people trying to make a life in a new country it's so different. And their children don't really want this Buddhist stuff. Their, their children want to be American. So families are feeling torn apart. And this retreat is the first one I've done with Vietnamese people in this country. And he said, I wonder if you would come with me because your songs would reach the youth. They would, they would listen to you in a way that they may not listen to me. And I mean, you can imagine how, how I felt. I, I mean, I felt incredibly honored and incredibly unworthy and incredibly unprepared for this. But 
he did some, he showed me something very powerful and I hope I can put this into words which is um it wasn't about me he saw the way the dharma came through me and he knew that it had a power and that I was a vehicle and he needed that vehicle <laughs> he needed that vehicle and he didn't vet me he didn't ask me for credentials he didn't ask me where I'd been trained that wasn't the point well, the point was join my mission because I need what you what you do so I, of course I said yes I talked in my last uh, Dharma talk I think about enlightenment being an appropriate response and in my 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 experience with Thich Nhat Hanh, which I'll you'll see as I go along the appropriate response from Betsy was yes that was the appropriate response inside I felt like I, I can't even believe this, you know, but it didn't matter. It did not matter. We went to that retreat together. I don't remember much, but I do remember singing with the children. And I remember at one point I had just finished singing and he was sitting next to me and he reached over and he just stroked my hair the way a, a father would a child. And um, it was so tender. And that's another piece of, of this renowned global leader was his, his vulnerability and his heart. He really came from his heart. He had appropriate responses that were really unorthodox and visionary because he just listened to this gentle, tender heart that had been through so much um, during the war and, and beyond. So he knew the suffering of these Vietnamese people and he knew the suffering in the family and he would do anything he could to help. And I just want to mention, because I, I just think it's so important, I didn't know where else to put it, so I'm just going to do it now. I want to mention his colleague and dear lifelong friend, Sister Chan Kong. She was a young Buddhist with him in Vietnam. They were both in their 20s and they started the youth, is it social service? It was a youth social work group to um, go out into the villages and help people with schools and with clinics and with hospitals during the war, risking their lives to go out among the people. And this was the new vision of Buddhism that they were, that Thai was articulating and that they were holding on to was we're in the middle of a firestorm here. We're in the middle of a, of a nightmare. And here we can't just sit in the temple and chant and breathe. We need to be out here with the people. So Sister Chung Kong was a deep part of that. She's written a book called Learning True Love. Learning True Love. How I Learned and Practiced Social Change in Vietnam. And I highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's, it's harrowing, actually. There are descriptions of some of the things that she and her young friends went through, including um, monks and nuns immolating themselves, their fellow, their sisters and brothers, monks and nuns being um, murdered by, um, you know, the, the North Vietnamese forces. Um, so anyway, but she um, herself tells amazing stories also of having, getting horrific news and then just breathing, walking meditation, arranging flowers for hours, for hours, just walking, breathing, arranging flowers, and just waiting for the storm to pass. And that leads me to the third retreat that I went to with Ty. I believe it was the third. Um, it was early on, maybe within two years of meeting him. 
And it was a retreat for Vietnamese refugees and who had lived during the war and soldiers from the U.S. who had fought in the war. Two incredibly wounded groups of people. And I'll talk more about that retreat in a minute, but I want to just say that one of the great impacts that Thich Nhat Hanh had on me was that he taught about suffering and the end of suffering. And he put out this faith that one could meet unbearable suffering with what I just described with Sister Chung Kong, with presence, breath, looking at what is beautiful, refreshing the spirit with nature, and not flying out in, her, in too much anger, too much hysteria, too much drama, just like feel it, but hold it, have it be a container, and the breath and the practice was the container. Now, by the time I met him, I was, whew, gosh, almost 40. And like any of you, I'd been through a lot. You know, you don't get through this life without some pretty horrific stuff. And I had a pretty big, big wellspring of suffering that I was trying to, you know, uh, learn how to live with, with more joy. And I believed him, I believed his message because I knew what he had lived. You know, there was a lot of um, New Age stuff floating around in the 70s and 80s. A lot of um, transcending and spiritual bypassing, I'm sorry, but this is what was going on, and so forth. And I didn't trust that at all, but I trusted him. When he said, smile, know that you are alive, I trusted that smile. It was a hard-won smile. It was not an easy smile. So he wrote a poem, and it was during the war, uh, pull it out here, and it was at a time when um, there was a village that he and his friends had worked very hard uh, building a clinic and um, helping children with education, and they were really invested a lot in that village. And uh, American warplanes flew over and destroyed the village and, or destroyed parts of the village. They destroyed the clinic that they had created. And the young people came in again and they rebuilt the clinic. And then warplanes came again and destroyed the clinic. And this happened two or three times. And it was at this point that Sister Chung Kong writes about just walking and breathing and arranging flowers. And Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a poem. And he said he wrote it after he heard about a bombing. I'm not sure it was these bombings or another terrible bombing. And the comment was made by an American military leader. We had to destroy the town in order to save it. Save it from those terrible North Vietnamese, right? So Thai wrote this poem called For Warmth. I hold my face in my two hands. No, I am not crying. I hold my face in my two hands to keep the loneliness warm, to keep two hands protecting, two hands nourishing, two hands preventing my soul from leaving me in anger.
something in his that story, something in that poem, reached into the broken, aching parts of me. So I made his poem into a song. called In My Two Hands. Two hands. 
After I wrote that, I'm pretty sure, he invited me to another retreat that was invitational only. And as I said, it was the, the retreat with Vietnamese refugees and veterans of our, our part in the war. And I just, as I've been thinking so much about this since he died and, and just reviewing the whole arc of my relationship with him and the impact on me. And I thought about the courage that it took for him as someone who also lived through the war, who was also deeply wounded and had many losses and had times of, of rage, as the song admits, um, over the, the violence done to his country. And then to bring together these two groups that had been, quote, enemies, to offer healing to both in the same room, just remarkable courage and um, and compassion. 
And it wasn't the kind of gathering. There was only maybe 30, 40 people there. And he asked me to come again because he felt the music would be helpful. And it's, he, it just, he talked about how very deep the wounds were and how much healing music could bring. So again, there I was, there I was at his side. Um, and he talked about the suffering on all sides. He didn't talk about the, the, war, the, the soldiers as purveyors of suffering and death. He did not frame them as the cause of the suffering. He framed them as victims of the war along with everyone else. He knew the, about the suicides. He knew about the depression. He knew about the PTSD and the unemployment and the homelessness. And, and he just knew as in his heart that you don't become of, you know, a person who takes another life in a violent way. You don't become that easily. You know, a lot of damage has to be done to you to become that person. He called the soldiers, he said, you are the tip of the flame of the American suffering. And the American, he didn't say dysfunction, but what, what, what is ailing this country. You are the tip of the flame. And, you know, I came in, I had, I had been an anti-war activist, like probably a lot of you were. I had marched, I had protested, and I had, frankly, I hate to say it, but I'd had a very disdainful view of, um, of, of the soldiers. I had very little respect. I didn't understand. I didn't understand. I didn't know anybody who'd become a soldier. So this was a deep teaching for me of um, him understanding what we now call moral injury, the moral injury done to those soldiers. And there was one night when um, every, every evening he would give a Dharma talk. And there was one evening when he went to, after a particularly emotional day and he sat in front of the room in silence for a while, five minutes, ten minutes. And then he turned to me and he said, Betsy, I can't talk tonight. Would you please give the Dharma talk? And that too, I think, is it just it was so moving. And of course, the appropriate response was yes. And, but that the vulnerability for, you know, I think it's so easy to see world figures, great leaders as somehow immune or insulated or beyond this kind of shaky, trembly, what Pema Chodron calls the groundlessness, you know, of our ordinary human lives. And Thich Nhat Hanh never bothered <laughs> to, to, fake, to fake anything, you know. And he just was feeling his own suffering and honoring his own suffering and having the humility to let the Dharma come through another channel. He didn't need to be the great one, you know. I can't tell you how much that's affected my life and changed my life. To see, because I, I, I've probably confessed to you more than once that my performing career was based on some profound intentions for good in the world and also some profound woundedness that made me need a spotlight and a lot of applause. And I needed it to be about me, you know. And I watched this person that I admired and loved so deeply and, and saw it just not being about him at all. So I, I think, I think, Ty, I thank you. And the last thing I want to say, because we're, we're going to run to the end here, is that 
what he embodied, this is what I've really been thinking about these last couple of weeks, is you know how in our metta practice, when we first offer metta to someone, they off, we're often instructed to offer metta to a benefactor, to someone who we feel com just completely safe with, who completely loves us. And um, it's not complicated, you know, we trust them. Thich Nhat Hanh was that benefactor for me. And what he did for me was he took a young, very unformed woman, rather immature for 36 or whatever I was, and he lifted me onto um, large public stages. I went to Eastern Europe with him and sang with him in Czechoslovakia. I sang at many retreats throughout the U.S. and, and um, so forth. And he did what any good benefactor does, and I hope you've all had one, which is see the best in you and create a space for you to be bigger than yourself, to get out of your small self and be invited into the truth, which is something comes through us when we're our best self, and it's bigger than our individual identity. And because of the way he elevated me, he believed in me, and I had incredible doubt. Every time he got me on stage or in front of people, I had so much doubt. Or, you know, that, or at least doubting is one of my hindrances. But with his, he had faith. And his faith opened a place in me to have faith. It, it was like he drew me into the realm of faith and trust, which is a factor of enlightenment and a parami. And so he really just created a space where a larger and better person could offer the transmission, the Dharma. And, and after I'd go home, and I wasn't in that setting, of course the ordinary conditioned Betsy would be right back there with all of her hindrances. It's not a permanent elevation, but it was a continuous one, and it was happened over and over. And so the, um, the beautiful, what's the positive word for stain? The beautiful uh, perfume of it stayed and stayed with me and little by little I have been able to find that space more and more because he offered it to me and um, again there, there's no way to express the gratitude and I hope that each of you has had some experience a teacher or a, an adult or a friend or I don't know what but someone who in, who saw you in a, in a way that elevated you know and enlarged your sense of yourself and if not you will <laughs> so um and also oh oh they're very important i'm glad i looked at my notes <laughs> where we can find this you know how he always taught maybe you don't know he would talk about looking at a flower and finding peace or looking at a tree and feeling kinship and he had this, a friend of his wrote this little gata, little quick thing that said, I have lost my smile, but don't worry. The dandelion is keeping it for me. And it's like when I lose my sense of proportion and my sense of, of the, the, the kind of luminosity beyond the conditioned, the ocean, the redwoods, um, a puppy dog, you know, there's all this stuff available to us to remind us who we are where we are in the place of things. Our, what Mary Oliver says, our place in, in the wild things. I can't put it right, but you know what I mean. So even if no human being has given us a sen our sense of our largeness, the ocean 
can do that and the redwoods can do that. So if you're hungry to be enlarged and elevated and brought into a larger self, I, I hope you'll all go, go to the ocean very soon <laughs> or the redwoods or a mountain. Yeah. I am solid like a mountain. I am firm as the earth. I am free. And you know, it's like Ty is living right in this moment. Ty is in me, and now he's in you. He says, do not look for me. I can't quite quote it, but do not look for me. Ah, oh. hold on. <laughs> I just feel like there's one more thing I want to give you from him, directly from him. Do not say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving. To be a bud on a spring branch. To be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest. To be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower. To be a jewel hiding in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. So Ty, you are with us. We are grateful for you. We are blessed with all that you have been and done and said and shown. And you are eternal. So let's dedicate the merit. Thank you so much, dear friends. Um, I, I so needed to share this, and I'm so grateful it was you that I shared it with. <laughs> and maybe we'll see you tomorrow morning for the meditation at 7 o'clock. So, with full hearts and gratitude, we breathe in the blessing of the transmission of, tree, of wisdom, of compassion, of truth from Thich Nhat Hanh's great master teacher and that teacher's teacher and Sister Chang Kong and the monks and nuns stretching back 2,500 years. We breathe it in knowing we are part of this lineage we carry this dharma forward. We are the Sangha. Thich Nhat Hanh said, the next Buddha may well be the Sangha. Mm. And so we allow ourselves to be enlarged by that knowledge and to live the next moment, the next hour, the next day in that largeness of spirit, knowing that we are more than we know and that we are part of a great living, beating heart of the universe. May all beings be blessed by that knowing, by that truth. May we all be free and awake.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.